morning. My name is T.C. Morrow, pastor for Public Witness and Ecumenical Connection. As we continue worshiping today, receive these words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter beginning with the first verse. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I, become, when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Will you continue praying with me? Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you. For you, O God, are our strength, our hope, our life, our Redeemer. Amen. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Now this uh, evidently was quite a robust conversation in our last confirmation class. There are at least a couple of solid responses. First, I would pose a follow-up, slightly more specific question. Does showing up for worship and other church activities on a regular basis make you a Christian? And if by Christian we mean, as we say in our baptismal liturgy, a true disciple who walks in the way that leads to life, then the answer to that follow-up question is a resounding no. 
going to, ch- to a church makes you a Christian as much as going to a garage makes you a car. It is quite possible to be a card-carrying Christian whose life has little resemblance to Jesus and perhaps even does damage to Jesus' good name. The story of what happens when Jesus goes back to his home church in Nazareth, it's a story that we didn't hear read this morning in this service, but is the story assigned in the lectionary for today from the gospel. Some of you may know the story. Jesus goes to his home church in Nazareth and reminds the people there that God's prophetic work is focused on those considered outsiders or other implying that that would also be the case for Jesus' own ministry. The hometown crowd couldn't stand the thought that Jesus wouldn't just share his gifts with them. They were enraged at Jesus' implication that the miracle of his love would be offered to people whom they deemed enemies, to people they despised. When Jesus went to his home church to visit the adults with whom he had grown up, perhaps folks who had taught him the Torah and played with him as a child, perhaps adults whom he had admired, when he went back to them, what happened? They didn't just damage his name, they tried to kill him. The story goes, they tried to run him off a cliff, ran him right out of town. They'd somehow missed the part in the scripture about caring for the stranger and the sojourner and doing justice that following God meant walking humbly with God. They wanted what they wanted for themselves, for their own tribe. You're ours, Jesus. What you have is ours. They were looking out for themselves. But as Jesus points out in models, the Judeo-Christian story provides a stark contrast to this human tendency, because you know, it's not just that church in Nazareth all those years ago that would do such a thing. This is a human tendency and Jesus counters it. The story that we tell is not just about us as individuals. It's not just about me, it's about we. Our faith is all about relationships. It involves caring about more than just my own needs and desires, my own tribe's needs and desires, my own congregation's needs and desires, my own faith tradition's needs and desires. It involves attending to the needs of of a whole community. It involves attending to the needs of the most vulnerable ones in God's creation. These relational, communal, other-focused aspects of our faith are not peripheral 
to the practice of Christian faith. They are at the very core. And here's where we get to another response to the confirmand's conversation. In short, there is no such thing as solitary Christianity. Being a follower of Jesus means being in community with other followers of Jesus. We can be spiritual without the presence of other people in our lives, but we cannot be growing disciples of Jesus Christ, deepening, growing that relationship without the encouragement, guidance, wisdom, accountability, and friendship of other disciples. We need one another. I often talk about the community of the church as the lab or the training ground for the rest of our lives. It's in our faith community that we get to practice mercy, (laughs) practice compassion, practice leadership and courage and speaking up or holding our tongues or sharing our gifts or honoring others' gifts and all the rest. The first letter to the Corinthians was focused on helping that congregation get clear about ways that they needed to improve their practice. As Pastor Ben reminded us and pointed out last week, Paul in this letter is speaking to the ways that in that congregation, some gifts were being valued more than others. Some people were being valued more than others. And Paul encouraged them and continues in this chapter that we heard today is encouraging them to practice a more excellent way of living in relationship and community, the way of love. We practice love when we are present with one another. Weekly gatherings for worship are our most, in many ways, most regular, certainly most broadly shared communal experience of relating with one another and with God. For those who are new among us on any given moment when we gather, what they see, hear, and do as part of our shared worship tells them a lot about who we are and what we're about. For those of us who worship regularly as part of Foundry, everything we do in worship is an occasion for rehearsing, for practicing our faith. One writer says that the repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship over time shape us in ways of being with God and being with one another. In the repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship, 
We are formed and fashioned into the values and vision of the gospel. Repeated patterns and practices, it is suggested, are necessary in order to be formed into the shape that more closely resembles the kingdom of heaven. We can think of all sorts of examples of this in other contexts. Think of a bodybuilder. If you want to change the shape of your body to emphasize certain aspects of your physique, then regular, repeated patterns and practices are required. The same movement over and over builds strength and definition. If we want our lives to look a certain way, to have particular characteristics and to reflect particular values, then repeated patterns and practices, disciplined habits, are required to help us have our lives take that shape. This is the Wesleyan way. We might also think about a sports team. Individuals can practice the fundamentals on their own, but the team won't play well together or accomplish its goal unless each person is consistent at team practice and then utilizes each gift of each person on the team. The repeated patterns and practices of Christian worship meant to be lively and life-giving can certainly become formulaic, boring, and, well, deadly. Camille, you ever experienced worship that didn't feel alive? The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, was deeply concerned about worship that didn't feel alive. In his 18th century Anglican church, of which he was a part and ordained priest, he worried that his church had devolved into empty ritualism, seemingly cut off from the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And Wesley's response was to organize small groups to study the Bible, to pray together, to support one another in faith, to hold each other accountable, and to serve the poor. These small groups provided the context within which folks nurtured a faith that was really connected to their daily lives and deepened their relationship not only with others on the disciples' Path, but also with the God whom they worshiped when they showed up on Sunday morning. Wesley remained an Anglican priest his whole life and always expected, and he did expect, uh, members of the groups, those small groups, uh, this is of the Methodist societies, expected them to attend regularly Sunday worship at their parish church and to bring their spiritual aliveness with them into the pews to enliven the ritual with a vital and living faith in a living God. So you see, our spiritual heritage as United Methodists is rich with a model for small group community with worship patterns and practices of the Anglican church out of which we grew and 
an intentional focus on the movement of Holy Spirit who is always at work in our daily lives and in our worship to challenge, transform, inspire, and make us new. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but even, it doesn't matter if it's high liturgy, we so-called, or low liturgy, there is a pattern and a movement to Christian worship. Kind of follows the whole story of development of a Christian life. God gathers us in. We give God praise and prayer and gratitude. We are encountered then by the word of God. Then we respond to the word in acts of faith and generosity and sacrament and commitment. And then we are commissioned and sent out to continue the work. And we do it again and again and again and again. Shaped and formed within this basic pattern. And those of us who plan worship within this basic pattern occasionally may add something a little creative or different within that pattern at the prompting of the Spirit. And then in any given week, Stanley knows something about this, something may happen on the spot, something unplanned or uncontrolled, and you just need to go there. Am I right? You just have to go. When Spirit shows up and says, oh, we're, we're moving through the pattern, we're doing our thing, then Spirit steps in and it's like, oh, we're going there. You can do that. You can do that. The regular pattern and practice of our communal worship creates the trusted container in which spirit can move in surprising ways. I'll never forget the Ascension Sunday when after preaching a sermon inspired by an image of Christ dancing into heaven, I had my friend on board to sing, this was years ago, to sing the song, I Hope You Dance. You remember, I Hope You Dance, remember that song? So she was gonna sing this as the response, and I knew that I would invite the congregation to do something. Maybe pray, maybe come to the altar rail, maybe, you know, just ponder. I didn't really know what I was gonna invite people to do. I thought, I'll let spirit lead. And so it came to that time, and I literally said, do whatever spirit leads you to do. And I will be darned if Emily starts singing and people got up out of their pews and started dancing with each other. We have people like two stepping down the aisle, right in church. Communal ritual and relationship over time, whether it's in worship or participation in small group, or service community helps create trust that allows taking risks like that. Communal ritual is also important because of its consistency. It helps us remain in relationship to God and to one another through the varying conditions of our lives. And this is why I encourage those who are grieving or those struggling in their faith to get back to stay in regular worship or connection with their small group as soon as possible, as much as possible. 
Because those rituals, those places, are the, the constant, a place to be held. It's also been said that ritual practice is necessary for us because of our persistent amnesia. We forget who we are, whom we, whom we live for, why. And so we gather in small groups to remember, to share what's real in our lives, to receive as we've heard already in the witness today, to receive encouragement, support, and prayer for the journey. We're present with one another in worship to pray and listen and ponder, to sing our praises to God, to speak words full of poetry and mystery that call us to remember the story, to remember who we are and who God is and why we're here anyway. That it's not all about just looking out for number one, there's something larger of which we're a part, that there's hope for our lives, no matter the circumstance. Perhaps the most poignant example for me of the power of our communal built trust relationships over time, the power of ritual to form and shape us, is the experience of praying and singing with folks who suffer from Alzheimer's or dementia. Somehow the Lord's Prayer or favorite Christmas carol or the, the Gloria Patri or anything that has been repeated and has taken shape and has formed over time and has sort of soaked down into their cells, even when people can't remember who they are, they don't know the name of those closest to them, somehow you start to repeat the words of these things and it comes back. It is there. Part of who we are. When I'm talking about being formed and shaped, I'm talking about being formed and shaped by these, these things together. And of course, finally, the thing that matters most of all in life is the love that we give and receive. Cultivating relationships, caring for one another, sharing life in all its complications and the highs and the lows and working shoulder to shoulder for things that matter. Team, amen. persevering together, laughing and crying. This is the heart of it all. Our worship and our intentional connections and relationship with one another in small groups, in classes and ministry teams and committees provide the place for us to practice living faith and living hope and living love. And only when we've been at it a while will we be able to create enough trust. It might take three years or so to fully trust each other enough to do the really difficult things and to work together in ways that truly honor every gift and member. It's in these contexts that we are formed and grow in the love and compassion that reflects the love of God revealed in Jesus. So, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? To call yourself a Christian, let's use that question. Let's be specific. 
No, you do not have to go to church to call yourself a Christian. Do you need to be part of intentional covenant community, even with all its challenges, needs, disappointments, and foibles, in order to be fully shaped and formed over the course of your life into the perfect love of God and the image of Jesus? That would be a yes. That would be a yes. And the good news is that God's faith in us, hope for us, and love for us abide, and that loving presence will guide your steps and always on a path that leads to life. Thanks be to God. <laughs>